Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a programmer's preview of our Jonas Mikas retrospective with FLC junior programmer Dan Sullivan, followed by a Q&A from the 59th New York Film Festival with FLEA director Jonas Poer Rasmussen, moderated by NYFF director Eugene Hernandez. Few, if any, figures in the history of New York City film culture have left as large a mark as that of the Lithuanian filmmaker, critic, and poet Jonas Mikas. Rising to notoriety in the 1950s and 60s as a champion of and mouthpiece for the new American cinema, he founded and presided over such stalwart fixtures of the underground and avant-garde film scenes as Film Culture Magazine, The Filmmaker Cinematique, The Filmmaker's Cooperative, and Anthology Film Archives. He was also one of the 20th century's most vital film artists, a master cinediarist and something like a present-tense historian who documented the particulars of immigrant life in New York City. Featuring 16mm screenings, our Jonas Mikas retrospective takes place from February 17th to 23rd. Here's FLC junior programmer Dan Sullivan with a short preview of the films in the retrospective. Hello, I'm Dan Sullivan. I'm a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center, and I'm joining you all today to uh, talk a bit about our upcoming retrospective for the late, great Jonas Mikas, kicking off in our theaters on February 17th. The retrospective will run through February 23rd, and it'll present a selection of some of uh, Jonas Mikas's greatest uh, films. But I also wanted to uh, sort of set the context a bit for why Jonas is one of the most crucial figures, uh, not just in the history of New York uh, film culture, but I'd, you know, I'd say of global film culture. 2022 marks Jonas's centenary. Of course, I should mention he uh, he passed away in 2019 at the uh, ripe old age of 96. On the occasion of his centenary, the uh, Jewish Museum is mounting uh, the first major uh, U.S. museum exhibition celebrating uh, Jonas's life and work uh, entitled Jonas Mikas, The Camera Was Always Running, uh, which is going to be on display at the Jewish Museum from February 18th to June 5th. And in conjunction with that, Film at Lincoln Center will be presenting a selection of some of his most essential films. But I think we, but we need to establish the context for Jonas's work. I think we have to start a bit earlier um, than the uh, remarkable films he made in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and onward. Jonas Mikas was born in Lithuania in 1922. During World War II, he and his brother Adolphus, a filmmaker in his own right and a frequent collaborator of Jonas's, were interned in a Nazi uh, labor camp uh, in Germany. But then after the war, the UN refugee organization relocated uh, him and Adolphus to Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, uh, which is maybe where the the main part of our our story uh, sort of begins. He quickly developed a taste for uh, for cinema and and filming, particularly uh, filming uh, his life uh, as it happened to him uh, with his trusty uh, Bolex camera, which he uh, bought quickly upon moving to the United States uh, with money that he borrowed. And this would uh, begin a really uh, a remarkable um, series of contributions uh, to the landscape of uh, 
of filmmaking, film exhibition, film distribution uh, in New York City, really a, a very critical stage in the development of uh, the American uh, film avant-garde and I'd say more broadly of American independent uh, filmmaking period. In 1954, he and Adolphus founded uh, Film Culture, um, a, a somewhat early but uh, quite important um, journal of film criticism and film theory, uh, uh, whose texts uh, remain uh, incredibly influential and important to this day. And that uh, sort of naturally uh, led uh, Jonas um, to write the uh, movie journal column for the Village Voice, uh, which he began writing in 1958, uh, another, which was uh, in and of itself of quite an important uh, contribution in the history of, of uh, film criticism. Uh, his successors would, of course, include uh, Andrew Saris, Jim Hoberman, uh, and so on. Uh, but, and then in 1962, um, his, uh, uh, his work would extend to, uh, film distribution by way of the filmmakers cooperative, uh, which, uh, which was founded to, uh, better distribute, um, the works of the, uh, new American cinema that was, uh, emerging, uh, at the time. Uh, and from this, uh, from this, uh, came, uh, in 1964, the founding of the filmmakers cinema tech, uh, to provide a place to, uh, screen, um, these works and, uh, the filmmakers cinema tech would of course, uh, go on to become, uh, what we now know and revere today as, uh, the great anthology film archives, which is still, uh, uh, oper fully operative here in New York City and uh, sort of continuing um, to uh, carry out Jonas's uh, vision for uh, what the cinematic experience should entail, uh, what sorts of work should be uh, preserved, uh, distributed, exhibited, and so on. So uh, across the his 96 years of a life well-led, uh, Jonas was many things. He was a poet, a spokesperson, and a champion of films and artists. Um, he was a father. Uh, he was uh, a friend to uh, to many of the most uh, sort of essential uh, figures um, in uh, sort of mid-century uh, 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 American culture, likes of Andy Warhol, uh, Barbara Rubin, uh, the Velvet Underground, etc., were all in his orbit. But in in the con in the context of this retrospective, um, we're going to be focusing on his films, and so I wanted to uh, discuss uh, a few highlights uh, from the retrospective. So maybe we'll start with uh, one of the one of the films that uh, Jonas is uh, best known for, uh, Walden, or Diaries, Notes, and Sketches, which was filmed between. Uh, 1964 and 1969. Walden, across its nearly uh, three hours in uh, runtime, is really a, a pivotal uh, work of, of personal filmmaking, of, of, of what we sort of call now a, a 
diary cinema, uh, diaristic filmmaking. Um, and it collects uh, just, it collects impressions, memories, um, uh, and so on from uh, those five years, uh, Jonas's life, uh, New York. And viewed today, Walden feels like a, like a really remarkable document of a, of a very remarkable time uh, in arts and culture in New York City. There are uh, no shortage of notable cameos, which perhaps I'll, I'll leave unspoiled uh, in hopes of drawing you to the theater. But I might just note that uh, I think Walden is a, is an especially uh, good film to begin one's sort of encounter with Jonas Mekas' uh, filmography um, because it establishes a number of the uh, techniques and aesthetic strategies that would uh, mark all of his uh, subsequent work, filtering uh, a veritable ocean of documentary footage uh, uh, through this kind of subjective prism of his emotional life uh, and and it's his emotional life as as expressed by film technique uh, namely um, the fact that it's entirely uh, quite rigorously edited in camera giving it sort of an incomparable feeling of uh, of immediacy and uh, directness the film is uh has a this kind of convulsive uh, energy to it uh, that seems to express kind of the excitement of of, of being uh, in New York uh, in the mid 1960s and being uh, so deeply immersed in uh, a number of uh, quite exciting and ultimately uh, kind of enduringly influential uh, developments just in in the history of uh, arts and culture in the United States in general. Um, and all of it is uh, sort of composed under the sign of uh, Jonas's own uh, kind of twist on, on the, uh, the Cartesian cogito, um, you know, I think therefore I am. Uh, Jonas uh, transforms this, uh, this idea uh, within Walden. Um, uh, he translates it uh, into the context of sort of personal cinema. And it, at one point, a title card in the film uh, reads, I make home movies, therefore I live. I live, therefore I make home movies. And this uh, sort of sums up, uh, I think, the entirety of Jonas's uh, career. We'll also be showing uh, uh, The Brig, from 1964, which uh, of course precedes um, Walden, and uh, not just uh, not just chronologically, but also aesthetically, uh, the Brig um, is uh, fiction, uh, un unlike uh, most of uh, Jonas's work. Um, but it's an adaptation of uh, the Living Theaters uh, off Broadway staging of Kenneth H. Brown's uh, play of the same name. The film is uh, set entirely uh, within uh, a Marine Corps prison, and it kind of chronicles the, uh, the hardships and kind of unspeakable indignities uh, suffered by a group of prisoners at the hands of some sadistic guards uh, at the prison uh, across a single day. The film is uh, 
is both uh, a seminal adaptation of uh, of experimental theater, uh, a tribute to uh, to the activities and uh, work of the living theater, uh, but it's also a searing polemic against uh, against the carceral and military industrial uh, complexes. And it's also uh, it seems worth uh, worth noting that uh, the Briggs screened in the 1964 uh, New York Film Festival and a write up of the film in Time magazine at the time of its premiere described it as having a nightmare air that suggests Kafka with a Kodak. So while the Brig, distinct from uh, almost all of Jonas's work for its being fiction and its being uh, based on uh, on a work of theater, it remains a fascinating film in general, but all, but particularly fascinating in the context of uh, Jonas's uh, overall filmography and in terms of its uh, connectedness to other cultural artistic activities happening in New York City at the time. And finally, the other film that I, uh, that I want to highlight is another one of his signature films, a uh, film between 1971 and 1972, uh, reminiscences of a journey to Lithuania, uh, which is arguably the sort of most perfect um, realization of the kind of ethos and aesthetic philosophy manifest in uh, Jonas's work uh, overall. Um, the film uh, captures uh, Jonas's return uh, to Lithuania. Um, in 1971, after having been away um, since, uh, since before the war, and it's an, ex an exceptionally poignant and poetic work uh, about the experience of exile, but also uh, about the experience of homecoming and, uh, and about memory. And although, although uh, in the years to come, Jonas would uh, would uh, would make a number, would make many, many more uh, diary films, uh, including ones that were uh, even more epic uh, in their scope uh, than something like Walden. Uh, namely, uh, you can look at the examples of films like Lost, Lost, Lost uh, from 1976, which is also screening the retrospective. And uh, as I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty from 2000, uh, which is nearly five hours long, uh, Reminiscences of a Journey to Lithuania distills into 82 minutes uh, a really powerful uh, meditation on memory, homecoming, uh, the experience of exile, and uh, and the importance, I think, of, of documenting uh, times, uh, places, and people um, uh, before they're sort of lost to lost to the oblivion of, uh, of the past. So again, uh, the retrospective uh, is running through uh, February 23rd uh, for uh, the full program listings and film descriptions and so on. Uh, you can go to our website, filmlink.org. Hope to see you there and, uh, and viva, viva Jonas. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. 
The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. In the Academy Award-nominated Flea, Amin's life has been defined by escape from a young age. Forced to leave his home country of Afghanistan with his mother and siblings after the U.S.-supported Mujahideen toppled the government, Amin relocated to Russia as an adolescent, only to take part in a dangerous migration to Western Europe as a teenager to break away from the harsh conditions of post-Soviet living. Now that Amin is planning to marry a man he met in his new homeland, Denmark, he begins to look back over his life, opening up about his past, his trauma, the truth about his family, and his acceptance of his own sexuality. Using animation as both an aesthetic choice and an ethical necessity to hide Amin's true identity, Jonas Poher Rasmussen's animated documentary is an illuminating and heartrending true story about the importance of personal freedom in all its meanings. Flea, an NYFF 59 selection, is now streaming. Let's go to the talk, moderated by NYFF director Eugene Hernandez. Tell us about the, how you met. I mean, tell us about how the story begins for you. First of all, I saw him, as I say in the film, on the train. He didn't notice me. Uh, but, you know, coming from a very small rural town, when there's a new kid in town, the same age as you, it's, it's, it's something. And, and he kind of stood out, uh, both because we didn't have a lot of refugees or immigrants mm -hmm. in town at that point, but also because he was fashionable and <laughs> people weren't in my hometown. Um, so that was the first time I saw him. And then we slowly started meeting up, going to high school, um, and became very good friends. Um, tell me about the first things that he told you about himself. Tell me about, um, maybe your first impressions. Um, my first impression was that he was very polite and didn't say a lot. Um, and... He said that he came from Afghanistan, but that he didn't really want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, of course, respected that and was just happy that there was someone else, someone to hang out with in my town. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how, how it started. And what's the parallel between you getting to know him better as a friend and learn if and when you learn more? I guess, um, or as you're more intrigued about his background at the same time that maybe on a parallel track, you're thinking about how you might explore his story. Help me understand how those, the relationship with him as a friend intersects with your interest in sharing his story. Um, I was always curious, of course. Um, but I respected that he didn't want to talk about it. Um, and then a lot of years passed. I have a background in radio and I asked him if I could do a radio documentary about his background story. And he said, no, he said that he wasn't ready, but he also said that he knew that he would have to tell it at some point. And when he was ready, he would tell it to me. Um, and again, of course I respected that. And then years passed again, and I was invited for this workshop in Denmark called Anidocs where they gather animators and documentary filmmakers to develop ideas for animated documentaries. And I thought about, okay, but this is maybe a way to tell his story. And I asked him again, 
and he finally said yes and that he was ready um and as he says in the film we'll have to go slow because it'll take time for me to be ready to open up fully but but um he said that he had made up his mind and now he wanted to share his story so let's pause there and come back to Amin in just a minute tell us more about your own background tell us more about what you were just sharing tell me about um the work you were doing in radio um your creative development um i have i have a background in radio i did a lot of radio documentaries in uh, public radio in denmark um and i've done documentaries that my first film was about my grandfather back in denmark and um i then went to film school where i did fiction films um but i've mostly done documentaries um and and actually the the technique i use for interviewing i mean in the film comes from radio because in radio you don't have an image um so this thing you, you yeah you, you really need to um, have the subject paint a picture for you because you don't have an image so this thing of having him laying down having his eyes closed uh talking present tense is a technique i used in radio um because he really uh, he gets really detailed and I, I asked him to be, to be really detailed. And whenever he started talking about something, I asked him to be really precise on how things looked. Uh, and what it does is it, it gave us a lot of information for the animators to work from, but it also made him, uh, come back to the situation. You know, it kind of started his memory to appear, uh, and instead of retelling me the story, he kind of relived it and we then could relive it with him. So it's, it's a technique from radio that I've used in the film as well. When did you realize that the way you would explore his story would be more than radio, that it would incorporate animation, that it would incorporate image and sound together? But it wasn't actually till I was invited for this workshop this anti-docs workshop um and and there i thought okay but this is maybe a medium where he can tell a story also because with the animation we could make him anonymous and and he told me that from the beginning that he was was unsure if he would be able to be public with his story because it's it's such a hard story for him to tell and it still is and you know if everybody all of a sudden would know his traumas and he would have to talk about it you know in the supermarket or at a film festival um you know it's it's not just something he can small talk about he he, he like it's, it's too hard for him so so this thing about making him anonymous through animation was actually what in the end made him uh, agree to to tell to share a story i want to see what direction folks in the audience might want to go um, i can ask you some more questions but we'll take a couple and then we'll Go back. I saw a hand over here, so we'll start there. What kind of other stories do you want to tell moving forward in your career? Um, that's a very good question. I, I think in my entire career, it's kind of, I stumble across stories that I can't not tell. <laughs> um, and that kind of draws me in. Um, so I don't have a specific kind of story I want to tell. It's really finding the right stories or they find me i don't know how this works but somehow they find me and i get sucked into them um so but it's it's definitely you know human interest stories i, I think um yeah i don't know how much more i can say about it. in the center hi sure 
did Amin uh, share more with you of his story after Copenhagen and as he um, established himself financially? Do you mean uh, going going here uh, at to university here in the U.S.? Um, yeah, I, I was along all the way, um, and and he got a lot of scholarships. He was he's a incredibly hardworking guy, um, and you know he learned himself Danish, which is not an easy language, and he learned himself Danish in like six months, and started high school, and you know he worked in a, as a lifeguard in a swimming pool uh, in the morning before going to high school, and then went to high school, got better grades than me, um, even though he just learned Danish. Like he's just all the way through. So he got a lot of scholarships uh, when he started here. Um, and he also went to university in, in, in Denmark where it's, you know, it's all public. Maybe you could elaborate on going back a little bit to the process of deciding how you would tell the story, weaving in the training and the experience you had with this Anadoc conference or best, was it a, a conference or an education, a training program? Yeah, it's connected a, animation and documentary. It's like an animation school in Denmark that has this yearly uh, w yeah, workshop. So maybe just illuminate the conversations you had with him about how did you lay out what the film might look like, what this what this project would become if it, it probably began with very simple, straightforward interviews. But how much did you lay out at the beginning? How much did you know at the beginning? Uh, and then how did you um, kind of detail what your ultimate goals were plan well in, in the beginning i thought it was going to be a fairly short animated doc like 30 minutes uh, but of course i and when was this roughly time-wise um this was when i was at this workshop and this is eight years ago okay 2013. um so in the beginning i thought it was going to be like a 30 minute animated doc um but of course at that point i hadn't heard the story at all so when first he started talking and did all these I did all these interviews I think during the span of like three or four years I've done between 15 and 20 interviews with him and then I transcribed everything and started to organize it as a kind of script and right there I could see okay but this is not it's never it's never going to be 30 minutes because uh, I had 100 pages um, so so um, and then it slowly just you know grew and grew and uh, it was a bit of struggle because you know there's not a lot of money in documentary uh, um, and animation is super expensive so it was really convincing people that this was this was the right way to go um so it, it took a couple of years to develop uh, way back uh, oh i see someone whose hand is really high we'll start there and then we'll kind of work around we'll go back over here finding the animation style the look so it, it was a long process and I had like a core team of an uh, art director and an animation director I worked really closely with th throughout the process. And with the uh, art director, we really tried to set the tone of the film and we really wanted to feel authentic. Uh, we, I had I filmed all the interviews, so we had that as a reference. Uh, also the live action sequences where they're out looking at a house and, and I'm in their home. Uh, I shot all that, so we used it as a reference. Uh, but it, it was mostly for the animators to kind of find little kind of movements and like, like how he would uh, express himself. Um, and then for the visual style of of the film, it was really uh, looking at different visual artists. We uh, got really inspired by Edward Hopper for like light and color in the in, in the film, uh, and by a photographer called Ray K. Metzger uh, for like shadow and compositions. 
Um, so we found a lot of references like that and 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 developed the the style of the film. And we did an, an early teaser that that became a little too toony. The, the characters had like big eyes and it, it felt too clean. And I thought, okay, but did they need to feel authentic? Did they need to feel real? They need to feel flawed. They need to feel human. So we kind of draw draw back and 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 uh, and and made it a bit more. You know, the character designs a bit sketchy, and and the, the lines change throughout the film. Um, and then, of course, there's these other animation parts that are more surreal, which is really, you know, when he. When he goes into parts where he has a hard time remembering what happened or that are really traumatic and then we really want it to be very expressive like go into the emotion more so than being realistic and and so that was another process of, of finding a more surreal style yes with the hat right there about accepting the narr the narration that was shared with you the story that was shared with you the trust that you have um some of these aspects of of reliable witness reliable testimony so to speak yeah like i've i've known him for 25 years so i've i have no doubt in my heart if this is his honest story but it is a story with holes you know sometimes he can't remember uh and I also did go back. I went to the neighborhood in Moscow where he lives. I went to the prison in Estonia where he lives. I checked, you know, documents. Actually, there's in the archive material you, we have in the film, you see some of, of his family members in it. Um, so I, I, I was also supposed to go to Kabul, but but uh, the hotel I was supposed to live in got got bombed two weeks before, so I didn't go. But but um, but. I, I have no doubt that this is, of course, it is subjective. It is him telling his story, uh, but I have no doubt that it's an honest story. When you were having conversations about this, what would ultimately become the information and the background that you use in the film, um, once you started these conversations, did it just continue nonstop or were there moments where you had to stop for significant periods of time or would, were, there, were there steps back as, at the same time there were steps forward? There are definitely uh, long breaks in the conversation. Also, he says so in the film that now we yeah we need to. It's going to be like half a year before I can I can continue. Um, and also keep because he studied here. You know, there were times where he was here and I was in Copenhagen, and of course we kept in touch. But I didn't do interviews, so it was I did those fifteen twenty interviews during a span of four years, I think. When was your first conversation? What time? What's the time like? How many years ago? I think that's six years ago. Okay. Yeah, right there. Uh, how might this film help in the cause of other refugees? My my intention were never political. Like like this for me, this is not a refugee story. This is a story about my friend, and 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 what I hope is that it it generates some understanding, and if in the end that does that borders are opened up and refugees are allowed in. I would of course feel happy about that, but, but it's not my intention. I haven't, I haven't been intentionally political with this, with the story because I think if you start there, then you're fighting against someone. And I thought that wasn't my intention. I, I was just about telling his story and, and, and looking at the struggles he had. Uh, I wasn't interested in all the rules also because, you know, really fast it becomes a, a, a debate about systems 
and I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in, in the human condition. I'm interested in what it does to a human being to flee um, system someone else can take care of. I'm, yeah, I'm hoping. Um, straight there, yes. Can you elaborate on the space that you created for these conversations? You referenced it a little bit in your approach. Yeah, it's it's, it's really a technique I've used in, in radio documentary before, and it's it's this thing about um, really trying to to dive into your memories and be really uh, precise. I, I know it looks like a therapeutical uh, situation, but it's it's really this interviewing technique that I've used. Uh, and of course, because it is Amin sharing his story for the first time, there is something therapeutical about it. But that was more him because he knew that he would have to tell his story. And he, he felt safe with me because we've known each other for 25 years and it was in my home. Uh, so it was super important for me, of course, to create a safe space for him where he felt free and where he felt he could say um, whatever he felt like saying. Also saying stop or pause or um, we agreed on this from the beginning that he could always say, okay, I need, I need a break. Uh, I'm done for the day. Um, and also if he felt like something came out in the wrong way that we could kind of discuss how I would use it. So we did this agreement beforehand. Uh, so it felt like a safe space for him. Uh, what is your relationship with Amin today? Um, and what can you tell us about his life today? Well, he's still in the house. Uh, they, they buy in the end. Um, and of course he spent a lot more time there than he had thought he would when they bought it. Um, but he, uh, he really enjoys it. Um, the cat unfortunately died, but, uh, that they, they got two new cats. Um, and he, uh, sends me photos on a weekly basis from the garden, new flowers. Um, so. Uh, he's, he's, he's settled down definitely. Uh, and, um, and I think for him, it was really liberating to get rid of this story because it's been haunting him for so long. And, you know, what's to him at least, and to most people, I think like, uh, close, close, um, relations are so super important. And when you have a secret like that, like that, you always keep people at a certain distance. Um, but now he feels like he can talk about it when he feels like it. So it's, yeah, he's, he's in a good place. What kind of feedback did you get, um, after you, when you showed the film to he and his husband? Um, and did the film change at all because of that feedback? Um, he was part of the process all, all along and read this, the script I did and also saw like a rough edit. Um, and I, I told him that whatever factual faults I did, of course, he can comment on that. And also if there's something he, that at one point he kind of said, okay, but you left out this thing, which is to me is crucial to understand my, my story. So then we had to talk about it and I, I put stuff back in. But other than that, he was really generous and, and said, I, I, I trust you to tell my story. Um, and when he saw the film, he told me that he, he got very emotional about it, but he said, I, I'm not sure if it's because it's a good film because of course it's his own story and it's his trauma. So he wasn't certain. So it really meant a lot when it premiered, um, all the reactions it, it, it got that it was really positive feedback. Um, and his boyfriend, he, he, he really likes the film. He feels that his character is a little diminished. <laughs> <laughs> 
but um, yeah, it's not his story. We want to thank our friends at Neon for sharing the film with us this evening. And, and, and thank you for letting us show it here at the festival. 